Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST 231, the Soundgarden Flower EP. We had Soundgarden on about 30 episodes ago with the Ultra Mega OK LP, where we had Kim Thiel as a guest, and now we've got a single off the record. So, very cool to get into this one. We've got uh, an exclusive track to dig into. And we may or may not have a special guest. It kind of depends on the timing this week. And that is the, that's life doing a weekly show, hey? Yeah, yeah. So um, kind of been going back and forth with the engineer, Drew Canalet. Um, we'll see if it happens. It, if we do, it's going to be ultra last minute. So yeah, hopefully. But if not, you know what? Hey, we'll do our best. Yeah, yeah. We'll do our, we'll do our Mojack finest. <laughs> we'll do the Mojack people proud. So uh, before we get into the Flower EP, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Sure. Well, I'll start off by um, wishing you a happy birthday, Ryan. Ah, don't do that. Why not? Eh. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, I guess. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, uh, I've got a, you know, if you get some birthday money, I've got a suggestion for you here. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Lay it on me. Okay, I've been kind of steeping in Guns N' Roses the last few weeks. Oh, God. They So they reissued the Use Your Illusions albums in deluxe and super deluxe editions. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, and Appetite for Destruction was a huge record for me when it came out, and is still, to me, one of the greatest, if not the greatest debut album by any band in history, full stop. Whoa. Wow. By 1991, I wasn't quite as into the band, um, but you just couldn't escape these records when they came out, even if you weren't a GNR fan. They were so massive. Oh, yeah. I had mixed feelings about them then, and I still do today. I saw them on the Illusions tour, and they were great. Uh, for the Canadian leg of the tour, they stripped back the lineup to more of a the core of the band, very similar to what you see on the Blu-ray that comes with the Super Deluxe edition of the Use Your Illusions. The footage on that Blu-ray is from a smaller show at the Ritz in New York. Um, the albums had just been recorded. They were done, they were in the can, and they were about to come out, but they weren't out yet. Steven Adler was long gone from the band, uh, but Izzy Stradlin was still in the band, and my God, is the footage amazing. Pro shot, multi-cam, amazing audio and video. The quality is just top-notch. The band's performance is incredible. They clearly were still getting along at this point. Uh, And like the onstage chemistry, especially between Axel and Slash, is just so obvious. They play tons of Illusions tracks. Uh, The show was a warm-up for the tour, which ended up grinding on for like two or three years. Uh, Pretty much split up the original lineup of the band. There's also uh, on the albums a live set from Vegas, uh, that was from after Izzy left the band and they started to like expand the lineup. Uh, to me, that's when things started to kind of fall apart. And then the standalone versions of the albums uh, are remastered and have second discs that have live stuff from the Ritz and Vegas shows and a bunch of other random shows. There's So there's tons of unreleased live stuff. Sadly for me, no demos, which is what I, th- I think most people would want to hear. Like, these songs are good, but they're overproduced. Like, to my mind, if they took, made a single album, take off all the crap, like Coma and Garden of Eden and November Rain and all that shit, basically, 
basically take off all the songs Axl wrote and just make an album of all the Izzy Stradlin songs, strip off all the extra crap, put them on a single album, you've really got something. And the live at the Ritz kind of proves that point, I would say. There's like, there are GNR guys that are like before and after Izzy, right? Oh, for sure. Like that's what, is that what you are? Well, I mean, like there's good stuff on here, but it's just, you know, it, I don't know. Like if they're going to make a new album, man, they got to convince Izzy to come back. Hmm. And even though he changes his costume like 20 times in the Ritz footage, in my opinion, <laughs> Axel was probably the greatest frontman in the world in 1991. At, at that time? Yeah. yeah. It, not, not long after this, you know, his ego totally went off the rails. But It was fine at that point, though, when he's doing 20 <laughs> costume changes. It was later it that was, it went off the rails. Well, it was getting there. And you want me to spend my birthday money on that? Just a suggestion. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Okay, uh, hey, the other live album Blu-ray package I've been diving into nonstop the past few weeks is the Alice Cooper Live from the AstroTurf release. This actually came out in 2018, and I wasn't able to score a copy at the time because it was very limited. But as you know, Ryan, I'm a massive Alice Cooper fan. So when this finally got a wider release last month, I was all over it. Basically, what happened was for this show was... Um, this amazing looking record store in Dallas called Good Records that has a stage and frequently has in-stores. They invited original Alice Cooper bassist Dennis Dunaway to come to the store for a book signing for his crucial autobiography, Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs. So Dennis called Neil Smith and Michael Bruce from the original Alice Cooper band to see if they wanted to fly out for this book signing and play a set just the three of them, you know, from those untouchable albums that they made together in the 60s and 70s. The owner of the store lined it all up, and uh, he selected a date when Alice Cooper, with his band, was actually going to be in Dallas playing a show. Wow. And sure enough, the man himself came down, along with his guitar player, Ryan Roxy, uh, who filled in for the sadly departed original guitarist, Glenn Buxton, and they played uh, in this record store including deep cuts like Caught in a Dream, uh, Is It My Body. The performance is just so unbelievably good, it's sickening to watch. The whole thing was shot on film. Um, They made a documentary out of it. Not like I needed reminding, but these songs that they wrote and released in the 60s and 70s as a band are some of the greatest rock songs ever written, period. So what year was this show? Like 20... 17 2018 oh it's pretty recent hey yeah yeah oh and it so that that was released and it was sold out in a flash and now it's out again and you were able to grab it that's right oh okay yeah. what label is it on uh I'd like have... is it is it a is it a blu-ray only or is there a like a actual album that you can get no to? it's there's an album yeah okay yeah with the recording of the the live concert it's probably on a major label though hey well it's 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 probably is I don't have it here in front of me, but it's uh, good records like helped release it. Oh okay, yeah, okay, cool. That sounds interesting. Yeah, and the O's on the on their logo are Alice Cooper's eyes in good records. Ah, on the LP package. Ryan, great reaction to our episode from last week with Jeff and Soraya. Jeff told us a bit about his EP that he 
that he released called Marcos. Yeah. Um, he calls the project Brenneman. That's his last name. Six songs about growing up in North San Diego, circa 76 to 86. It's out now, and it's killer. Definitely SST vibes. I hear some pops, Minutemen Firehose, uh, but it's super eclectic. Jeff's a great singer. Love the lyrics. Paints a, mm. a real vivid portrait of Jeff and his friends, you know, smoking pot and fishing, skating <laughs> pools. <laughs> uh, the, there's amazing cover art on it by Tony Lozano. Lots of amazing guest musicians. It's a testament to Jeff, I would say, and what a great guy he is. Uh, not to mention a musician in his own right that he was able to corral some pretty big talent to contribute to his his album. Yeah, it's up on streaming or Bandcamp, uh, where you can buy it digitally or you can order it on CD. There is a vinyl version out there too. Apparently, yeah, yeah. And real quick, Ryan, another friend with a killer new proj is our pal Kevin Corbett who uh, I used to play in a band with called Sleaze Patrol many, many years ago, and you and I played in a band with called The Apprehension Order. Right. He lives out in Nelson, <laughs> BC now, <laughs> and he has a new band called The Kill Rats, and they just released their album, 13 tracks of primo 90s garage rock, like a lot like The Motards or something like that. Oh, cool. Thekillrats.com will take you to all of their socials and their band camp. It's streaming also. Amazing multi-panel artwork by the legendary artist Tom Bagley of Forbidden Dimension fame. Kev himself is also a visual artist and runs the Lifeform Instagram page. He sings and plays guitar in this band. He, he drummed in our band. Longtime DOA drummer Patty plays bass in this project, and their drummer's name is Victor Olinick. And also, as, a side, as an aside... Kev played in the legendary Tipsy Gypsy band, The Split Lips, along with his twin brother, Kevin, who went on to form the band Shock Flesh, the band that wrote our theme music. Yeah. So there you go. A little tidbit for our listeners. Nice. Kill Rats. Yeah, check it out. I didn't know that. I will. Cool. What do you have? Uh, This week, I've got some releases on the tree. Seven on the tree, Mm. by my count. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are these new releases? These are, well, there's one new release and six reissues. Okay, because, dude, we've got our our SST 2022 roundup coming up. Or is this a spiel scoop? No, man, this is okay. not a spiel scoop. I'm just, I'm, I'm hipping, I'm hipping folks to some on the tree stuff that they got to get into, you Don't know? Don't make me screen share the bylaws with you. <laughs> All right. Look, this is not going to blow your mind, most of it, but I love the last one, okay? So hang in there. Um, Some of this you probably know about, but uh, Dinosaur Jr. re-released their 2007 reunion LP, Beyond. It was originally issued on Fat Possum and impossible to find on vinyl, and now you can get it on vinyl on Baked Goods. So go get Beyond on vinyl. That is uh, just a killer record, and uh, they've all been great since then, of of course, and before, and before. Mm -hmm. And speaking of before, Dinosaur Jr. also releasing a box set called Puke and Cry on Cherry Red. This is their Sire Years records, and it just collects all of those 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 four records with all the bonus tracks and blah 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 that's been out in the last few years on those um, LP versions. But if you know if you haven't bought those already and you want to get it on a CD box set, that's coming out on the Puke and Cry box set. 
Also from the Dinosaur Junior camp, I mentioned a couple of months ago that Folk Implosion have reformed and out right now is their EP, new EP, Feel It If You Feel It, but they've also signed with Joyful Noise Records, who has reissued their 1994 album, Take a Look Inside, on cassette only. And of course, this is Lou Barlow and John Davis. Really looking forward to some new output from Folk Implosion. I hope that uh, Joyful Noise re-releases more of the Folk Implosion records, and hopefully we've got an LP coming in 2023. Mm. We actually just had a Bad Brains episode a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't realize at the time, but uh, the youth are getting restless, the Omega Sessions and Rise are all getting the reissue treatment right away, and that's awesome. We were just talking about how the youth are getting restless is you know, kind of the live Bad Brains record and uh, definitely deserves a reissue. Hopefully they kind of tweak the sound a bit too because that one is, I don't know, not my favorite sound-wise. Better set list though. I don't usually do this, but I have Rise on CD and cassette. I might buy the LP. Yeah. that I that might is, do that. I just might. It would, I don't think you could have even got it on vinyl when it came out. Doubt it. Doubt it, right? So it's going to come out on vinyl. I only have the Omega Sessions on some weird CD. Tempting to get on vinyl too. Will that be a ten inch? I wonder. I didn't. I actually didn't notice. It might mm. be a ten inch. I'm pretty sure when it originally came out on Victory, it was a ten inch. It was, I have it. Yeah, so. yeah. This might be the LP version. Don't know. Mm. Um, but keep an eye out for that. And then finally, that's so that's six on the tree. Okay, all reissues. Here's new on the tree. It's not out till next year. But I'm so pumped, i got to mention this. The Egg has got a new record coming out, Brent. The Egg, it's called Every Loser. It's coming out in January, and Raymond Pettibone is doing the album cover artwork. Yeah, the the single that he's released so far is actually pretty good. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. They, you know, I really loved it, the, those records with, you know, the Queens of the Stone Age guys. Those yeah. were amazing, amazing records. And then the one that came out just uh, after that, a little subdued not didn't really didn't really get me this one sounds a lot more promising to me and uh really looking forward to this one it'll come out like right in right early in the new year very cool to see some pettibone artwork on the cover of that one too absolutely yeah so that's all i got was that a was that a spiel scoop i don't feel like it was a spiel scoop well maybe i don't know (laughs) (laughs) oh man All right, well, let's get back into some Soundgarden. History lesson, part one. So as I mentioned, we had a Soundgarden episode. It was actually SST 201, the Ultra Mega OK, so exactly 30 episodes ago. Um, And that was their third kind of standalone release. They had released Screaming Life in 87 and FOP in 88, both on Sub Pop, and then Ultra Mega OK on SST, and then... Shortly thereafter, the Flower EP comes out. This is released in May of 89, and it came out on a number of formats at the time. A CD single, uh, a 3-inch mini single, a single, a 12-inch, and then a zillion different colors of 10-inch later on. Um, So this one was actually around. I saw the Flower EP around a fair bit at the time. Yeah, bit of a cash grab for sure. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think I think the uh, the extra track on it is worth it, though. For sure. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I'll just do a little recap here, Ryan. SST released Soundgarden's debut full-length album, Ultra Mega OK, right. in November of 88. Uh, we go super in-depth on that episode, 201, including having, as you mentioned, Kim Thale on 
as a guest. But I hit the Mojack stacks for this release, Ryan. And nice. I, and I found the goods. In June of 2017, Decibel Magazine inducted Ultra Mega OK into their Hall of Fame for issue number 152. Ah. And I don't think we mentioned that. Nope. On the previous episode. I kind of forgot about it, to be honest with you. As I've mentioned before, Decibel has very specific rules around which albums they can induct. The primary one being that every band member has to participate or they won't do it. Chris Cornell uh, passed away tragically in May of 2017. So by the time this issue was out, he was gone. Which they do reference kind of in the preamble to the, to the, to the piece. So, mm. you know, they kind of suggest this wouldn't have been their ideal pick for an, a Soundgarden album to induct into their Hall of Fame, but I think they were able to do it because the reissue was brand, you know, was just out of, of Ultra Mega OK, so the band was, you know, interested in just in talking about it maybe. Right, yeah, the uh, the remix on Sub Pop that yeah. Indino did. Yeah, like I think they probably would have preferred to put in uh, Bad Motor Finger. Yeah, or maybe even Super Unknown, who knows. Yeah. This EP came out in May of 89, like you said, a little before their major label de- debut, the, the second album, Louder Than Love, which came out in September of 89. So a bit of a stopgap maybe between uh, Ultra Mega OK and Louder Than Love. So this article, like I said, was written, written right after the Sub Pop reissue. Uh, so there's a bit of discussion about the improved quality. So they ask the guys about the decision to move from Sub Pop to SST. Um, like you said, they had done Screaming Life and the FOP EPs prior to, to this one on Sub Pop, prior to the Ultra Mega OK. Here's what Kim says about that. In 1988, Sub Pop was kind of broke. They had no cash flow going, a problem they solved with the single of the month club. We'd always had a huge affection for SST, but it really starts with 1984 and the records they put out in 1984. Mm. You know, those that was the year that kind of built SST's reputation, you know? Totally. He goes on, Meat Puppet's second album, Husker Du Zen Arcade, Minutemen Double Nickels on the Dime. I think Black Flag put out a couple that year. My War Slip It In, and I think even Family Man came out that year. Saccharin Trust put out this great album called Surviving You Always. Oh, yeah. And the debut of St. Vitus when they had original singer Scott Riegers. We formed in 84, so we were getting together after work three times a week with a 12-pack and our guitars all shoved up in the attic of the house Hero's parents were living in, right above an insurance office. Everyone was on the same page, loving the Minutemen, Husker Du, all that. Being on SST was a big deal to us. Matt Cameron says, I think it was our goal as a band if we had the opportunity to get on SST. This just felt like a huge step up in the 1988 underground U.S. rock scene. Mm. And here's Chris. That was our goal before Sub Pop was even a label. We started in 1984, and probably by 1986, you can say that 60 or 70% of the most vital post-punk indie bands out there were either SST artists or had at least released one album on SST. They had a lot of amazing bands. That was our ultimate goal. Hero in the article talks about how they knew they were signing with A&M by the time, you know, this was being recorded, but they wanted to release an album on on an indie label first. He says, that's why SST made sense to us. They were an underground label, but they were bigger than Sub Pop. (laughs) Not for long. 
<laughs> right. It kind of kept us rooted in where we were, coming from a punk base. To us, that was really important. So they, you know, they talk about how they had started talking to A&M as early as 87, actually. And A&M knew about the plan to put something out on SST. This is what I found most interesting about the article. And maybe Kim talked about this. I'm sure he did. Or maybe some of the other stuff we referenced in the, in the episode talks about this. But in the article, they talk a little bit about how the album is different from their other ones in the sense that it's made up of some songs that were fairly new and some of their oldest songs. So stylistically, it's a it's like a bit all over the place, mm. which is totally true. Here's Matt. There were some new songs like Mood for Trouble, Nazi Driver. That was all new music. Then there was stuff like Beyond the Wheel. It seemed like that stuff had been around for a while. I remember we played Flower quite a bit before the Ultra Mega Sessions. Incessant Mace was around before I was in the band. So there was some older material that made it onto Ultra Mega. It was a combination of old and new. Here's Hero. We had all these songs from the early days. That's what's kind of cool about the album. It has the early formative songs of Soundgarden on it, and then it kind of has the new direction. It's a little quirky in that way. Here's Kim. Flower was relatively new. We had played Flower live, but there was no earlier recording. Chris. In a sense, we were going back on Ultra Mega OK, and also writing some new songs to kind of fill out a whole album. We really wanted a lot of our songs to be heard that otherwise wouldn't have been. So Ultra Mega OK was kind of a picture of us at the time, combined with a picture of what we had been doing since we started the band. They talk a fair amount in the article about how Chris started playing guitar during this era and how it changed the sound. They asked the band about shifting towards getting heavier during this era, and here's what Hero said. I think that this is what was going on in Seattle at the time. Bands were getting heavier. There was Green River and Malfunction. It was going from our early days of Soundgarden and Skinyard as kind of like these King Crimson-like kind of prog, rocky, more than it was heavy rock. But it was more new wave-centered, like Echo and the Bunnymen or XTC, mixed in with American rock and punk. Kim, the local band that probably had the greatest influence on our sound would have been Malfunction. Back when the Melvin slowed down, it kind of gave a lot of the punk rock bands in Seattle that reassurance that it's okay to play that Alice Cooper song or slow it down a little bit. We were already doing a little bit of that because our slowness wasn't coming from Sabbath or the Swans or anything. It was really coming from the tendency to want to be psychedelic and dark. We borrowed that from maybe Bajas or Joy Division or something like that. So that's, you know, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm sure Kim talked about that in our interview. They, you know, people will say Led Zeppelin and Sabbath, but they were coming more from that, mm -hmm. that post-punk uh, side of things. And, you know, St. Vitus, I'm sure was an influence. And, uh, you know, those SST bands that he talks about. Yeah. They go on to talk about the sessions and how they were concerned during the recording. You know, Kim basically says it, it was sounding amazing in the studio, but they'd go out to the, the dogfish truck. Rem remember, Ryan, this was recorded with a, a mobile unit. The same one, actually, um, that was used to record Black Flags, who got the 10.5 record. And he says it sounded thin. 
he he says something to the effect of um, in the studio it sounded like Metallica, but when they went out to listen to playbacks, it sounded like Elvis Costello. <laughs> <laughs> But they kind of, you know, I guess deluded themselves into thinking it would, you know, be fixed in the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I, I'm pretty sure they, deep down, they knew, knew, you know, knew otherwise. They also talk about how weird it was that it got nominated for a Grammy, which they found out, uh, they found that out after Hero was already out of the band and they were on tour for Louder Than Love, so almost a year later. Do you remember, Ryan, who else was nominated for a Grammy that year and who won? Oh, we did this last time. Wasn't it like uh, Metallica and Jethro Tull and stuff like that? No, no. That was the year after that or okay. the year prior to that. Sorry. Okay. Come on. Regale me. Uh, well, Metallica <laughs> won for the song One. Okay. Faith No More, The Real Thing oh. was nominated. Queensryche's I Don't Believe in Love. The Grammys are weird. Like they'll nominate an album or a song or whatever, right? Like when Metal uh, when Motorhead won a Grammy, they won for a fucking Metallica cover. It's so what? yeah, it's so stupid. What? Yeah. Motorhead covered Metallica and Motorhead won a Grammy? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure I've ever even watched the Grammys since yeah. around that time. Yeah, I know. It's, it's such, so stupid. Such horseshit. Yeah. Uh Dokken Beast from the East. Rockin' with the Dawkins. Well, I love Dawkins, so... I know, I know. Remember when Steve Fisk played in a band with George Lynch from Dawkins? Yes. Remember? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's what I found in the stacks. It's a great article. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't find too much else uh, from last time because we did go quite extensively into this release and this era of the band, but I did find a couple of nugs from this book, Loser, mm. The Real Seattle Music Story. This is the updated second edition by Clark Humphrey. And uh, my edition is falling apart because, um, I don't know, the glue is drying out and stuff. But um, I did like this description of Ultra Mega OK. I thought that this made sense. They're talking about, um, they're calling it Sub Pop Rock City 87 to 88. They're you know They're really talking about how things are really percolating and are going to get big it says how uh soundgarden left sub pop after the sub pop 200 release and following the fop ep here's kim he says sub pop is this huge hunk of indigenous seattle culture that is getting attention nationally and internationally it's like seattle's got something homegrown that isn't rent a culture that's a fact that got recognized in new york and london and la before it got recognized here, I think it's the best time to be in Seattle. And he's saying this in October of 89. So mm -hmm. he know he knows that stuff is about to blow. He can just tell, right? Yeah. Um, and here's the description of Ultra Mega OK. It says, in the fall of 88, Soundgarden released Ultra Mega OK on SST Records. A lush melange of hard-rocking riffs and psychedelic wails, which furthered its reputation among the hard-rock cognizanti. It included a minute-long segment of studio noise after the last track, billed as One Minute of Silence, and attributed not to John Cage, but John Lennon. And here's some SST promo copy of Ultra Mega OK included in this loser book. Twisted metal from the magnetic north with wailing vocal gymnastics punctured by razor-edged guitars, 
served atop hypno-erotic rhythms. Some mighty good eaten. <laughs> that, that's different than the Spaceman spiel from last time. Uh, so I thought I'd throw that in. And uh, and then it just talks about how they are negotiating with A&M. They got about $175,000 advance for that. And the rest is history too, right? Yeah. So about right now, Brant, if uh, Drew's on, we'll toss to that. And uh, if not, I think we're going to history lesson part two. Ooh, I can't wait to find out which one. <laughs> All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Drew Canulet. Drew, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I want to just go back with you. Are you from uh, originally from the Portland area? Uh, no, I'm originally from uh, New Orleans. Mm. It was it Evergreen that brought you out that way? Uh, no, actually, uh, I moved up here with my uh, family when I was five years old. Um, my father and my grandfather were involved in shipbuilding down in New Orleans. They built, uh, riverboats mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, through a series of, uh, interesting things that occurred with the federal government and Huey Long and a couple other people, uh, they dissolved the company and my dad moved up here just to kind of get away from that. <laughs> okay. So like you did go to high school up around, around that area. Uh, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon. So okay. I, I, I live in Portland, Oregon right now, and um, I was looking for a school to study media production, and I had mixed bands in um, high school. I played in a couple of bands. Um, I was really intrigued with recording, yep. and so that's kind of, I knew when I was younger, that's exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. So um, I got a, uh, basically got a full ride to Evergreen to go study media production and uh, moved up there. And uh, completed college in 82 mm. and then um, moved up, came back to Portland and uh, started to figure out how to build a recording studio, how to finance it, what kind of gear to get, you know, and uh, Evergreen that, sounded like a really fun place to go to school <laughs> during that, that time. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was amazing. It was perfect for me. You know, it's a it's an experimental college kind of write your own ticket you yeah. know it uh it um it encourages free thinking and students that are motivated mm -hmm. in the pursuit of some kind of academic you know th th that are, are pursuing something yeah you know but it is a liberal liberal arts college so did you do a, a radio show you know, I wasn't really involved with the local radio station, which was Chaos, K-A-O-S, yeah. and I think they're still going, but um, I worked more in electronic music and um, music production yep. and um, sound design for film. That was more of a calling for me than it was, let's say, a radio production. Right. You were around, sounds like roughly at the same time as say Steve Fisk was though, for example. Exactly. We were in the same program. Oh, you um, were. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, Bruce Pabbitt. Yep. And, um, who else was in that? Um, Oh, there's a bunch of people. Alex Stahl, mm -hmm. who was, uh, he was, a a, a person down at Pixar, Dan Crow, who's, uh, he's actually out with Sammy Hagar right now as wow. front of house mixer. He's also with Joe Satriani right now. I think they're just shutting down and then everything's moving over to Europe in 2023 and he'll be over there for a while. So there was a lot of people. I mean, I'm, I, I know I'm missing a bunch of people that have, you know, 
come and gone um, and that have been involved in, in, in this, you know, so very successful program then. Yeah, it was, it was kind of the golden era as far as I was concerned, you know, um, God, Stuart Hallerman, who has a successful um, studio up in uh, Seattle and he was actually the sound man for uh, Soundgarden. Okay. And yeah, and he's, he's doing quite well. Were the instructors anybody that, you know, we would know? Um, maybe, um, there was a, a the, the instructor that we had for making music, David Engler, he, um, he left the college the next year and, and went down and taught in Texas. And the gentleman that took over for him was Steve Scott, who was from, was it Colorado State or University of Colorado? I can't remember. Anyway, he was a composer that wrote, uh, music for a prepared piano. Okay. And so he would engage, you know, nine to 14 students and they would um, all play this piano. That was, you'd basically pull the dampers off of it, take the lid off. And they had long strings for long bows and they had short bows for more pizzicato notes. And um, they had this whole song and they would do, it was just, it was quite beautiful. I think it was called rainbows or <laughs> something <laughs> classic like that beautiful music um he was there there was another gentleman that ran the facility ken wilhelm who just recently passed away he was kind of like the the technical guy that just kept the wheels on all of that gear because it's it was a ton of analog equipment that was there oh yeah yeah it was a you know these really beautiful api consoles that are classic now, you know, they were, you'd see them in all the seventies recording studios, you know, um, Ampex tape machines, you know, um, and just the, the typical mic collection of, you know, RCA ribbons, Neumann condensers, right. you know, all kinds of beautiful stuff, you know, Sennheiser EVs. And they had, uh, they had Moviola full coat machines for doing film, uh, film work. Mm-hmm. And so you could actually, mixed down a movie there oh wow yeah they had nagra time code uh, nagra time code recorder and some okay mics for doing location work like that Mm -hmm. and um you know they they basically had a 16 millimeter thing set up uh they didn't process film there i think they did that up in seattle okay so when you left there you your ambition was to start your own studio you knew that's what you wanted to do yeah pretty much yeah. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, I knew did, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Did you know <laughs> that you want money? Yeah. <laughs> did you know you wanted to have like a to have a mobile unit be a part of the structure? Yeah. You know, there was a a gentleman, um, Wally Hyder. Mm-hmm. He was um, when I left Evergreen. I, I lived in a town called Newburgh, which is a little suburb community about thirty miles southwest of Portland, and uh, Wally Hyder was from that area and Wally Hyder was very famous as a location recording guy. He had a truck, he'd go around and record concerts all around up here and he moved to Los Angeles and started Filmways. And so he was a pretty big player in location recording in uh, Los Angeles in the sixties and early seventies. And then he, it basically went away and um, I think he just retired. But yeah, I was really motivated to do location stuff because I always like getting out and, you know, recording live shows. I like mixing live shows. I am assuming like that filled a void in the area. 
Yeah, yeah, it filled a void. There was another truck up in Seattle, and um, they were, they kind of kept busy, but um, it wasn't, um, they, the guy that ran it, there were some issues, and I'm not exactly sure what it was. I don't know whether it was just like they didn't have a good sound coming out of it or they didn't like the truck. But, um, you know, they were kind of like working kind of at the top of the heap. You know, they were like trying to get bands like Heart and the Greg Tripp Band and BTO and get shows like that. And I think that it wasn't really well... um, marketed or developed i think is what i'm saying mm. i think that's kind of what it was the different you, you know and it's all it's all about you know timing you know i think i was at kind of at the right place at the right time you know when i started the truck i had bought out some fellow evergreeners that had started the truck when i was going to school there and they had moved the truck down to Novato, california and it was just kind of sitting they're not doing anything okay. and it was a little one inch a track truck and you know they had a, a pretty terrible sounding mixer in there and they really didn't have any microphones and you know they really didn't have anything to do other than just kind of have that truck you know yeah. and i think with a technology like that you really need to have a vision and a motivation as to what's really what you're really going to do with it you know yeah you also had a studio in Newburgh, like with a console in it and everything? No, no, it was a truck. Um, I okay. parked the truck outside of the uh, the house. It was it was a ranch, that ranch house that was built in 1963. Two-story, had a, a garage, a two-car, no, a three-car garage that I turned into a studio. And so I would just park the truck's truck next to that three-car garage that was turned into a studio and then I would just run my sessions from out in the truck and I'd run wires into the house and do the whole situation. So it was just basically like a, a location gig permanently set up in my house. Was the truck air conditioned? <laughs> Heck yes. <laughs> and it was heated too. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess that would have been equally important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, some of the bands that I know of that, uh, you know, the first bands that you worked with, I'm sure you worked with bands previous to this, but the first ones that are kind of on my radar are like visible targets, three swimmers. Um, what do you recall about those sessions? Would those have been in, wow. in Newburgh? You know, those, <laughs> I actually I have did the those three swimmers been. record right behind me, actually. Oh my God, you yeah. do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> three swimmers. Oh yeah. The visible targets. I actually did those at Evergreen. Oh, okay. When I was going to Evergreen, there was a, uh, we, the senior project was an album project where you would basically organize uh, the students. They would write the music. You would record the music, you know, master it, and then you'd send it down to Los Angeles and have a record made. Mm-hmm. And so the first two years that they did that, they lost quite a bit of money doing it. And they weren't really happy about it. You know, there was a there was a, a, an academic component at evergreen that didn't think students should focus and specialize on stuff like this Mm -hmm. they felt they felt that evergreen is where you know 
one year you're studying, you know, macrobiology in the ocean. The next year you're studying, you know, music. And the year after that, you're into literature. And so they really embrace the idea of a, of a diverse liberal arts college Bachelor of Arts degree. And then there were the rebellious people like me <laughs> that like to specialize. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was, it was like I was a kid in a candy store. Yeah. It was just, it was just beautiful. I mean, I would go to school at eight o'clock in the morning and I would come home at 10 o'clock at night when they kicked me out of the building. <laughs> I just loved it. Yeah. So the, so these album projects lost money and, and, um, uh, I declared I was going to do the third one and, I was embraced by some of the faculty and some of the, some other faculty hated it and some staff people hated it. So it was, you know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of push and pull on this project. And they said, well, you can't do this record unless you um, have the money to make it before you send it off. Yeah. And so, you know, I just said, okay, so like the first, quarter we're going to do fundraising and we're going to do album music writing and then we'll select the music and the second quarter we'll produce the music and the third quarter we'll do the record and so the first quarter i was trying to figure out how to do fundraising and i was mixing live mixing down at a club and i'm trying it was called sailors but it was it was a bar close to the college and they do like you know kind of punk rocky stuff and the guy that owned it was really just super supportive and he hooked me up with the Olympia beer distributor and basically I got free beer (laughs) five cakes of free beer for a dance. And so I was like, let's get a, let's get a band from a really popular band from Seattle to come down and play. And so, um, the visible targets came up and I talked to them. I said, well, Hey, if you come down, and play for free while we record a record for you. Mm-hmm. And my faculty said, well, you can't exchange, sir, you can't charge, you can't do this, it's illegal. So I sat down with the, I, I was like, no, you should be able to do something like this. Cause I mean, it's just, you know, we're just, I'm providing a service, we aren't exchanging money. And right. I, I called up the attorney general's office, found some assistant, and we figured out how to do it. And so I had a contract, we did it. And we did the vis- visible targets and the three swimmers like that. And I also showed a decline of Western civilization and um, we had a couple big sales. So I made the money Hmm. to do this and uh, we did the record and paid off the other two records too, because Hmm. our record sales accumulated enough money to pay everything off. And we wound up with like an extra $10,000 in the bank. Wow. And, um, (laughs) I bet I bet some, the faculty some of those faculty members still resented you after that though. <laughs> I hope they're no, I, I can't say that. I can't say that. I was going to say something really crass, but I'm not going to say it. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I was asked to leave Evergreen because of this. Oh wow! Politely by the academic team, which was, I mean, and I was kind of ready to go to. Yeah. You know, it wasn't yeah. like I wanted to stick around there and figure it out. So, or stick around another year of this and. You know, I, I pretty much had gleaned everything I wanted to glean out of the college. And I think that, you know, I felt good about supporting the college. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I left and uh, they actually shut down the the studios for a year and then restarted them. And they have actually come back and they've modernized everything. And it's actually a beautiful facility. It really is 
the college is just wonderful, you know, and they've got great faculty there and great staff and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd recommend it to anyone, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, how did Black Flag hear about you? Did they approach you? Um, yeah, you know, it was actually through, I think Ray Farrell, who's a friend of Steve Fisk mm-hmm. was out managing their tour and so they wanted to record a live record and Steve recommended us. And so we, uh, at that point in time, I had a, a little 16 track recorder and, um, uh, we got hired to record them at, a uh, starry night, which is, a a fairly notorious club in Portland. Yeah. Tell me the story about this or what you, what you know about this club owner murdered somebody, <laughs> uh, Tim Moreau. No, he actually, he was involved. There was another guy that actually served time and Larry Hurwitz, who was the owner, he did time. And then he, it, it's a sort of, it's a, it's, it's one of those really sad tales where, you know, they, they do the time and they, they get back out of jail and then they do another crime and they get thrown in jail. Then they just move out to Hong Kong or something and mm-hmm. you never hear of them again, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then Tim, who was kind of his like side rod running the club actually went to jail for several years doing it and has kind of recanted it. And Tim Moreau, the gentleman who was killed, it was just really kind of sad, you know, that whole situation. But, uh, you know, you know, it's the business, it's a music business. Yeah, exactly what it is. You know, I mean, there's, Oh my God, there's, there's tales like that in every city, you know, you wonder about like New York and, LA, you know, just Portland would be just a small microcosm compared to some of the shenanigans that have been going on down there. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's pretty awesome that one of the, the two official black flag live albums was recorded by you in Portland. Yeah. Henry's a, I've run into Henry a couple of times and he still remembers me, you know, I mean, and we chat, I've, I've run into him several times at South by Southwest and Boy, it's he, he's an interesting guy. I, I really admire him, mm-hmm. and he's got a, a, a pretty straight ahead vision, you know, about what's going on. Yeah, you got to respect that. Yeah, do you have any like strong recollections about the about recording that show? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I think one of the, the funniest things was showing up and plugging in. And then going up and just talking to Greg Ginn and uh, Chuck Dukowski. And who was there? Someone else? No, it's just Greg and Chuck. And Greg, no, Chuck is counting out money in ones and fives <laughs> to pay me. All crumpled up ones and fives from the shows before. Right. And Greg is playing his guitar in a rock man, smoking weed. <laughs> 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 it was just. It was surreal, you know. It was super fun, you know. That I liked them, you know. They they were, you know, great show, real fun to work with. Mm-hmm. I'd you, love to remix it. Yeah. I, well, I was going to ask, could you? Do you know where the tapes are? Do you have them? You know, that's a that's the thing about SST is that that whole catalog was bought by someone in Texas. Hmm. How it's been explained to me, you know, I mean, I kind of got out of the loop with those guys. Um, but I know that Soundgarden wound up with their tapes mm-hmm. and they, in 
Theory remixed it with um, Jack and Dino, yeah. I think. Yeah. I don't know. I think they just remastered it. I don't think they rem- I, maybe they remixed it. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I mean, some of the stuff on some of the songs, I, I'm like going, mm, if they remixed it, then why are they doing exactly what I did? You know, <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, it's, I just, I don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm kind of out of the loop when it comes to those guys. I haven't seen or talked to them. I think the last time I really, I think I saw them was at Lollapalooza up in Squim. And that was like 92, I think, or 91. Oh, it's been a while then. Yeah, yeah. I was up recording Red Hot Chili Peppers, and they were, I think, they were headlining, and I think Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, there were Blur, who else? Uh, ministry was there. Mm. They, were, they were awesome. Yeah. I'm a big Ministry fan. <laughs> For sure, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so while speaking of Soundgarden, so I... I believe the first time you would have worked with them would have been for the stuff that ended up on the FOP EP. Yeah. Um, actually, we were mid-stride in the SST record. And then they said, hey, let's do FOP. Ah, and okay. so I just, I think I, I spoke with Chuck or, and Greg and they said, sure, that's fine. And so mm-hmm. I went up there and we recorded drums for FOP and we re-recorded some drums for their record up in a studio on 45th, kind of like on an alley. It was like an alley off of 45th. It kind of ran parallel to University Avenue. Mm-hmm. And it, it was this really great kind of warehouse space. It was up a flight of stairs and it's kind of out of the way. And it sounded really good. Okay, so everything else was done in Newburgh. Yeah. We re- recorded base, first set of basics and overdubbing in Newburgh. And then we did some tracking up in Seattle at that studio. We retracked some drums. I think we recorded a couple more songs and did a bunch of guitar work up there. And then we also worked in at Chris's house in Federal Way. Mm. So we did some recording up there too. Like on vocals? Yeah, we did some vocals up there. I think we did some guitars up there too. Hmm. Okay. You live right next to the airport. Who's Lance Limbacher? Lance Limbacher, he is a, a fellow audio person that I work with. He's he is more of a a, a film mix guy right now. Hmm. He's been he he does that's primarily what he does is he does uh, documentary films now. He's been working for HBO and Netflix. And he, he, I think he got an Emmy about seven or eight years ago. Okay. And uh, I mean, I've known Lance forever. I was like best man at his wedding. Uh, yeah, we've been friends. Yeah, he, he's a great guy. Okay. And he, he worked on Ultra Mega okay with you? Yeah, we, we mixed the record at a place called Pace Video Center because they had a an automated console. So uh-huh. this was like, Way before digital. Yeah. So this is like, you know, digital. I mean, I don't even think Deck had, well, maybe Deck had come out, which is like a stereo version of Pro Tools that kind of worked. But um, yeah, it, it, they had a they had all, all of the analog gear and they had a nice big analog console with automation. And so we could actually work on mixes there. So mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. And it was lo- located in downtown Portland. And at that point, I was working with Dogfish and I was also working at Pace. Uh, I think at that point I was installing a studio for them and um, doing some post work for them also. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned the remix. There's been, you know, some discussion about the the quality of the original Ultra Mega. Okay, for my part, I agree. Like, I, I have both versions. I don't hear a huge difference. And I know a lot of people that, that really like the, the original version. It it won a Grammy. <laughs> like, what, what do you, you know, when you hear it, what do you... What do you think? Does it hold up for you? Yeah, certain songs hold up for me. You know, there's other songs that I'm not kind of fond of. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you you got to remember this about that version of Soundgarden is that um, the way that I, the other way that I hooked up with Soundgarden was through Matt Cameron. Mm-hmm. And he was playing in an art band that I was recording. I was doing a record with called, uh, the tone dogs. Yep. And, uh, that's Amy Denio and Fred Chalinor, who's since passed away and dear friend of mine. I've known him since before, right out of high school. I met him, mm-hmm. uh, just an amazing bass player. He played with, uh, he played with, uh, did he play in Fred Frith with slow music? Hmm. So he's he's a pretty heady art player. He also played with uh, Wayne Horvitz and Pigpen, mm-hmm. and so uh, monster bass player. And then they were looking for a drummer, and Amy kind of hooked up with Matt and brought him down, and and we recorded drums with them. And and this is all just weird, kind of like arty, strange music that's in seven and nine and shifting time. It's in eleven, then it's in four. Just it's all over the place and uh, experimental experimental music and. Uh, you know, so he, when when they came down, you know, Matt, I remember when he showed up for the Tone Dog session, he had a drum set. And I'm just like looking at this going, mm, no, <laughs> let me go get you a drum set. Right. And so I went and got him a, a studio series Yamaha set that a friend of mine who used to have a studio but had since retired had. And it had all the really cool, it was like a timpani tom, floor tom. So it had like a pedal so you could play it like a timpani and it beautiful drum set and so he got that and tuned it up and it worked great and so you know these guys i mean matt had just driven his volkswagen van up from san diego you know so they had nobody chris cornell was a bus boy at the seattle yacht club you know (laughs) i don't even know if kim had a job and i mean they would drive down to portland to work with me and they would park their van in portland and then i would come up and get them which was like you know 30 miles because they wanted to save money on gas. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it, before, before these guys became rock stars, you know, they were, they were starving musicians, you know, it's mm-hmm. the same with Nirvana, you know, they're turning around at a galaxy 500, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the thing about this record that we talked about in the episode, it mm-hmm. is the eclectic uh, nature of it. I'm talking about the, the songs themselves you know, some of the later stuff had a more co- cohesive sound. This one is a is an oddity in their in their discography, just because of the nature of it being some older songs and then some some newer songs as well. Yeah, well, it fits. You yeah. know, I'm talking with Chuck and Greg about what this record was. I, I remember going, I mean, do you want a metal record or what do you want? Mm-hmm. And they were like, going, no, just do whatever that you guys want to do. Do what yeah. they want to do. That was, so, that, we've heard that over and over about Chuck and Greg is like 100% artistic freedom for sure to the, to the mm-hmm. artist. You know, and, and I think that's probably something that really annoyed, that annoyed Chris was that, you know, there wasn't this rain about that's not cool. You know, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that does, you know, it's like, 
you know, at some point you just kind of have to like, go, at least for me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in it to be popular. You know, I'm just, I'm more interested in like doing something different. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you encounter producers that, well, a lot of times you encounter producers, this is the way that we make the record. This is how you play. Yeah. And this is what I want you to do. <laughs> and I'm just like, fuck it. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's like do something new and different. Yeah. Yeah. Have some energy, you know, carpe diem, seize the day, you know, and just, you know, do something different. Yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned Tone Dogs. I wanted to ask you about a few of the other projects you worked on and just, I'll just throw some, some stuff at you and you can just maybe tell, okay. tell me your thoughts. Um, Napalm Beach. Chris Newman was the most natural guitar player I have ever met in my life. It's just, you know, you meet musicians where, you know, tuning is irrelevant. And Chris is one of those guys, mm-hmm. you know, he just, he, he can just play by ear, you know, and first takes, you get that band dialed in as fast as you can. You hit play record, you say, let's check headphones. And then they peel off a take and it just kills, yeah. you know? And you go, oh, too bad you didn't record it. And said, I recorded it. Let's go to the next song. You know, <laughs> peel off first takes. Because if you get into three takes with those guys, <laughs> the wheels start coming off the cart. You know. Yeah. Well, the record you did with them, Curiosities, really stands up, stands out for me. And they're again in well, their, in their catalog as a high point. Well, yeah, I, I love those guys. Sam Henry was something else. I mean, he was he, he was a great drummer. You know, I mean, he really is. A, you know, it's it's sad that they both have passed. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, but you know, it's no one gets out of this one alive, you know. <laughs> All right, Pell Mel, I if I have this right, you remixed rhyming guitars for SST when they yeah. reissued it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's something where I might go, I may like the original record better. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, we, we, I think we made some improvements, but at the same time, rhyming guitars is kind of one of those records from Portland that's just. It's like right there next to my heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I I still have my original copy, you know. I love that record, you know, and the chance to remix it was super awesome. And I think it was fun working with Steve and the band to 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 do something new and different, you know. Yeah. Um and but you know, it's I e, e, and I'm not a big Bill Stuver Stuber Jack Weaver fan. I like Jack. I think Jack has passed away too. I don't know what's happened to Bill Stuber, but they had Triangle Studios that recorded that mm-hmm. record, you know, and uh, it's the same place that Nirvana recorded uh, Bleach and uh, Screaming Live got recorded too. There. Oh, okay. Yeah, Triangle turned into Reciprocal, you know, mm-hmm. it, that's uh, it's the same space. Well, that's cool. Okay, well, you mentioned Nirvana. Uh, you recorded them maybe more than once, but for sure at Pine Street Theater in Portland. Yeah, that was a fun. <laughs> that was that was a funny show. I was working. <laughs> There's a great story there too. Um, th- th- there was a guy here in town, Jack Barr, that had a studio called um, High Tech Recorders, and he did uh, recordings with the Rock and Razorbacks, uh, Quarter Flash, Shock, Cooler, a lot of the bands. He was kind of the flavor of the month when it came to like the pop stuff, in like the you know. S- late seventies, early eighties kind of a thing. He had, yeah, just a really great mix the way he did stuff. He did it all the same way. It had a great sound and he was like, going, oh, I want to record a live band. So I'm just going great. <laughs> so I said, Hey, I'm recording this band Nirvana at Pine street. You want to come? And he goes, yeah, sure. And so we, we show up and he's like going, these are the instruments they're playing. And I'm like <laughs> going, yeah, 
check this out. And I'm putting drum cloths on everything and taping everything onto the drums and taping it onto guitars and basses and stuff. And he's like going, what are you doing? And I said, well, stuff's going to kind of fly around here at the end of the show. So we want to just kind of make sure we can kind of get some recordings of the stuff, yeah. you know? And, uh, we got him record. We, we, you know, we knocked it into record and he, and he's going along and, you know, we had done the soundtrack, the recording stuff. And he's just going, I can't stand this. I gotta leave. I'm like, been fine. <laughs> so he left and we finished recording. And, and I think who did they got someone from, um, it wasn't buzz. But they got someone from the Melvins to come down and play drums. Oh, probably Dale Crover. Yeah, yep. and so they they came in they came in they came in the studio they came, they came, they walked out into the truck and we we're just doing the playback like going yeah it sounds great and I said yeah I think it's it sounds really good yeah. and so they packed up the tapes and moved on mm-hmm. but I just thought it was so funny because Jack said they suck <laughs> it's like a Jack if he were alive he, he he actually passed away he had a heart attack and passed away in in a, a hospital emergency room of all places mm, wow but sad sad stories yeah what well, the music business man yep it's crazy okay uh Green River live at the Tropicana that's been released so uh, I guess uh, a I mean if you have any thoughts about that, but it got me thinking, you know, when you mentioned recording the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like I'm just guessing you're sitting on a mountain of unreleased live stuff. In 1992, there was a fire and it's like Geffen, a lot of shit just went away. Mm-hmm. You know, it was uh, there was an earthquake that cracked the foundation of the house out there. And, um, when they built it, they had pushed, uh, the wire for the range through the foundation. And so the, the, the foundation collapsed on it and a a short that, um, I was working with a band called hitting burst. So I had everything out on location, but the, the house burned to the ground. Oh, wow. And I just got a phone call. So there wasn't much I could do about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't really have anything. Okay. I I'm guessing some really important stuff was probably lost in that fire. Yeah, there was there were some uh, Tropicana stuff that went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, a couple Crazy Eights projects went away. Um, you know, um, most of the beauty of what I did though is that I rarely kept tapes of the stuff that I was working on. Oh, yeah. I, I never kept versions of it. I like. You know, when I would do scoring sessions with the Seattle Symphony for Danny Elfman or Steve Bartek, uh, those tapes would leave. They'd get f- flown down to the scoring stage. They'd get transferred. Mm. You know, when I do, like whenever, when I did these shows with uh, Neil Young, the, all those tapes left instantly. You know, same with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, all the Soundgarden stuff went away. All my Nirvana stuff went away, too. You know, Just I had a bunch of the, board mixes With the artist? Stuff. What's that? Just with the artist? Yeah, or the, the labels. The oh, labels okay. that paid for it. You know, they own that stuff. And so... You know, I just kind of had a policy that I wasn't an archivist, you know, and I just didn't want a lot of their stuff laying around the studio. So, yeah. Neil, hey, what um, has that been released? Um, I think some of it was on Arc and Weld. Ah. And then I recorded some live. Well, oh, pardon me. Uh, it was like right when they had gotten Crazy Horse back together again. Mm-hmm. And so I did a show in Seattle and one in Vancouver, BC. Oh, wow. Super fun. Never met him, but talked to him a bunch, just on the talkback mic, checking guitar tones and, mm-hmm. you know, same thing with, with everyone in the band. 
it seemed like you seem to be really connected with both CZ records and Tim Kerr records. Lots of work for both of those labels. <laughs> yeah. Tim Kerr and CZ. Yeah. Daniel house. We're friends on Facebook. I'm following him. He's just, you know what? I never really knew him, but I've gotten to know him better since he's been on Facebook. We've been, since we've been communicating. So it's uh, been kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one for my co-host Ryan, I have to ask you about the cracker bash. They're, they're one and only full length. Sean, you got to love Sean. Teddy, Teddy's awesome too, you know, and, and Scott, uh, those three guys were just so awesome. They're so fun to work with. You know, they're just, Sean is so creative. My roommate has bought several paintings from him mm. and he's still, Sean's still playing. I think he still makes pizza. He's got a pizza shop he works out of and and he, he just got off a tour and I know, um, Scott and Teddy have got a, a band and it's Satan's Pilgrims. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what Surf they do. Band. And uh, yep. they just, Dave just passed away that was in that band. God, all these, <laughs> we're all getting old and dying. But uh, yeah, I think Pilgrims are still playing. I have a bunch you of know? their records. I did not know they had connections to Cracker Bash. That's, yeah, that's wild. Ted, <laughs> Ted, Teddy's the drummer and, and Scott um, Fox is a bass player. Yeah, but Sean's got a new band. So yeah, and Sean's just super wonderful. And there were all these people saying, oh, he's just like Bob Mould. And I'm like, mm, no, not really. <laughs> okay, well, the, there's one for Ryan, one for me, because I'm the metalhead on our show, is the Cryptic Slaughter, Speak Your Peace, a Santa Monica band. I'm assuming you went to them with the, with the mobile unit? Or did no, they come to you? Uh, they came to me. And at that point, Cryptic Slaughter was out of Portland, and it was Brad Moen, who played drums in Sweaty Nipples. God, who was it? The guitar player? Les. Is it Les Anderson played guitar? And who else was in that? Um, what Brian LaFelt was in it. But Brad Moen sings in that band now. Mm-hmm. And they. I remember when we did that. Where were we? I was working on... No, that wasn't them. That's right. I, I remember playing it at, I, I was playing it at uh, La Luna, a club. We had a rough mix and, and I had, so, it was some metal show and I had someone put it on there and, and it sounded pretty good, but yeah, those guys were fun. I, I had done some speed metal before, but I'd never done like, I mean, that was just kind of like the speed metal I did was like turn treble up on everything. <laughs> just make it sound. Ah! You know? right. <laughs> but yeah, I think cryptic slaughter was more of a, a little bit, flatter of a mix than a lot of those bands but super fun but yeah i I met those guys through sweaty nipples what are you working on now i know you have some some big name clients that you work with what do you how do you pay the bills these days how do i pay the bills these days um i have developed a, a rather good relationship with nike and since 96 i've been doing a lot of their uh their uh corporate media and some advertising work with them. Mm. Um, right now I'm in the middle of a, I've been working on a project for two years with them, uh, and it's women's training. Um, Mm. and it's all over the world. So I use, we, we spoke earlier about this. Um, there's software and a lot of it's been developed through COVID, but also, um, just because of the bandwidth now that that has developed in the world, I can do VO sessions and record, you know, HD picture, uh, anywhere in the world, at least anywhere that's not like run by some fascist communist regime, like 
North Korea where they don't allow that technology to go in. Yeah. And, uh, or there's firewalls built where you can't get good connection with them. And so I, you know, work with these female trainers dealing with, you know, women who are, you know, menopausal or that are pregnant or that, you know, are paraplegic or they're single amputees and just there's all of these emerging market trainers. And so I've been working with a lot of these projects doing stuff like that. Then I'll get projects that come in that are like train wrecks that, you know, something goes out and gets recorded and it's just not up to stuff. And then I'll do restoration on it. You know, I get all their A-list athletes and at some point, you know, whether it's LeBron or, you know, at some point I did some Kobe stuff too, but more, more often than not, I'm working on, on mid-level stuff like that. I'm also, uh, I'm also an on-call sound guy for all the the national networks. So like with ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox, I get calls from them to go out and do location work. So um, that's one of the reasons why I said, let's go tonight, because there's a high likelihood that tomorrow morning I'm going to be driving over to Moscow, Idaho to, you know, work on a couple of up, uploads for uh, uh, Fox News. Oh, wow. Do you still find time to, like, go to a club and mix a band? You know, I don't really do live music mixing. I've got a music project in uh, December that um, uh, there's a gentleman that's a, he's A&R with Warner Communications, and he's flying in some buddies of his to work on a live record in his house. And so he's got like this, you know, huge, you know, 18,000 square foot house, you know, with, you know, multiple rooms all over the place. And so... I'm going to go out actually the 1st of December and start wiring his house, just running cables and getting everything all set up for this. And then I'll record all the music for him, do overdubs with his vocalist who's flying back to uh, Belgium and then um, work on overdubs guitars with him and a couple other guys and hopefully get the thing done the first two weeks of December. Hmm. So I see, you know, I do, projects like that. I've got a, a band that I've been playing bass in and it's, it's been fun. You know, I'm just having a, having a good time. What's the band? Uh, super luminous. Hmm. We're kind of like psychedelic rock. Is there like, uh, is there material we can hear? Is there a band camp or anything? Uh, yeah, there's a band camp out there for super luminous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right on. It's fun. And you're playing. Another, one other thing that I'm doing that is, is really kind of interesting is that I've, uh, started recording sound effects. Oh. And I've got a, a mic that was built in Germany. It's eight channels, records in Dolby Atmos compliant sound. And so I've got a little recorder and I go out with this microphone and record everything. I mean, I was out Southern Oregon and uh, out in the middle of the woods recording, you know, birds and squirrels. Wow. It's super fun. I, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> it's like all of a sudden I've gone from recording, you know, loud rock bands to recording room tone. <laughs> Sounds like, you know, future project like of field music. Yeah. Um, I was just chatting with a gentleman today at the Moda Center, which is where our, the Portland Trailblazers play about just coming in when no one is in there and just start recording room tones of mm-hmm. different rooms that they have there and air handling noises and stuff like that. When you're working on films, you don't have a lot of stuff like that to pull from. Right. Yeah. Like having a library of that kind of stuff would be huge. Yeah, it could be very, it's very helpful. You know, and I mean, I've got a bunch of buddies that are just like going, you got that mic, I need this kind of a sound. And so I'll go and record a couple things for them and give it to them and they'll, they'll be happy, you know. Yeah. But it's a, yeah, it's a, 
it's sound, you know, and yep. I've always enjoyed working with it. You know, it's always been fun for me, you know. I mean, there have been nightmare times. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right on. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. Uh, thank you for being so flexible in scheduling. Um, oh, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you squeezing me in. History Lesson Part 2. All right, man. So here we are, the Soundgarden Flower EP. It's funny how, you know, we were talking about they're not really coming from that Sabbathy world mm-hmm. and more of the new, um, like the post-punk goth world um, because it's really hard not to kind of reference a lot of those types of sounds in your head. Like, you know, there are some Sabbathy sounds on this EP and you listen to them in isolation uh, the first two tracks are just so grinding, and then the the flip, the the exclusive track has got a total Sabbath vibe for me. Yeah, well, I mean, they had the hair, right? And Chris had that voice. Right. Chris with Chris's voice, like you're gonna get the Zeppelin Sabbath comparisons for sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the first two tracks are both on side A of the. If, you know, if you're listening to this on vinyl, they're the both are the tracks we've heard on Ultra Mega Okay. Uh, recorded and mixed by Drew and Lance Limbacher in both Seattle and in uh, Newburgh, Oregon, using his Dogfish mobile unit, uh, which I'm pretty sure we discuss in detail on the Ultra Mega OK episode. Both of these tracks, Flower and Head Injury, are standouts from the album. Uh, so, uh, you know, good tracks for a single, especially considering they shot a video for Flower. Yeah, the video for Flower, though, uses a different version of the song. It's actually from a BBC version recording that um, you can get on the Telephantasm comp. Hmm. It's uh, a BBC version recorded May 14th, 1989. And it, and in the liners, it says first transmitted June 7th, 1989. Hmm. Um, now the track on Telephantasm doesn't have the, the part where Kim is kind of blowing on the strings you know, that kind of sitar effect. Yeah. But they mix that with the BBC version for the video. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the vi- video, of course, uh, shot by Mark Meyermont using the BBC version of the track. And the BBC version of the track is heavy. It's a bit slower and heavy. I don't think we noticed that last time. I sure yeah. didn't. Well, I'm trying to bring new stuff to the table, man. Well, that's new stuff. Uh, okay, well, speaking of new stuff... If you flip the record over, um, you've got the exclusive track, Toy Box. It was recorded and mixed by Jack and Dino at his Reciprocal Studio, 8-track studio, in 1987 during the sessions for Screaming Life. Mm-hmm. In the Decibel article, they, they actually ask about Smokestack Lightning and what, you know why they chose that instead of another original, and they all blame, all blame Hero for that decision. Hero, that he, yeah. <laughs> that he championed that selection. Uh, and Hero does own it, too, in the article. And then Chris says he's not sure why they chose that as opposed to one of Hero's originals, Toy Box, is what he says. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I've also seen it credited to Hero and Kim. So, I've got, well, when you look at it in the uh, the Echo of Miles box set, yeah, it, it gives, uh, and Toy Box is included there, it gives uh, credits, music to Hero and Kim, and lyrics to hero. Okay, that's how it's broke. That's yeah. how it's broken down there. Yeah, I was gonna say if our if our listeners don't have this EP, you can you can hear the this track on Echo of Miles. 
the 2014 rarities comp definitely a cool track it it's heavy and doomy but also has those gothy post-punk vibes they talk about as an early early influence mainly for me in the like the chorus effect or whatever it is that kim's using the chord progression and the note progression you can't help but think that that's it sounds so iomi-esque for me anyways yeah and I mean, I'm I'm not as schooled in that as you are, but for me, it's hard not to make a comparison there. I don't know. Does he use a tritone? I I can't remember in the song. I don't I think don't know. so. It's got those pick slides and all of the whispering and kind of those dynamics that they you know when they go from quiet to loud and Chris goes into his upper upper register. Mm. That's a total Sabbath trick. If you listen to a song like um, Megalomania, they do a lot of that kind of stuff. Ah. Uh. Recorded two years apart, though, and don't really sound like out of place. They fit together. And even sonically, again, I, I said this last time, the uh, like the Drew versions of the Ultra Mega OK songs, they don't sound like bad to me. They just sound like how I know them. Yeah. And, and when you put these two tracks together with Toy Box, you've got Drew and Jack um, doing the production on this uh, 12-inch it, it hangs together for me. For sure it does. Like it, when I listen to the Sub Pop CD version of Ultra Mega OK, I don't, it's not like mind-blowingly superior or anything like that to my ear anyways. No, it's it's maybe, you know, sonically a bit broader, yeah. he- heavier, you know, lower, warmer. But it's not like, wow. Like yeah. some, some stuff that's been remastered, it just blows your mind, but this is no mind blower. Totally classic cover photo by Charles Peterson. Instantly recognizable as one of his photos. I pulled actually off the shelf the Screaming Life book uh, to see if the photo was reproduced in it. It isn't. Nope. Uh, but I ended up sitting there and flipping through it, the book for like an hour. I haven't pulled it off the shelf for many years probably. So many iconic photos, many, so many of which ended up as album and singles covers, especially for Sub Pop. Uh, yeah. Mike, Michael Azarad's introduction to the book uh, quotes Jonathan Poneman of Sub Pop. He says, There was a group of people who ended up being the unwitting parents, the people who birthed the scene, and Charles is one of those people. And Bruce Pavitt, also of Sub Pop, says, Charles represents the scene. Those photos defined what was going on every bit as much as the sound of the music. And that's totally true. Yeah, I pulled that one off the shelf this week too. And also this one, the Touch Me, I'm Sick, Charles Peterson photo book. This oh. one's killer. Yeah, I don't have that one. Oh, get it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> does, your, uh, does your copy of the Screaming Life book have the CD in it? No, it does not. Yeah, neither does mine. I think every used copy in the world is missing the CD and that's how I got mine. <laughs> I didn't even know it came with one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's a little sticker thing in the a little back. Pouch. One of those there, little CD pouches. There was, yeah. yeah. But then someone, you know, rips off the CD and then they go and trade in the book and then I buy the book and you know, there you go. Probably have all, all the songs already, anyways. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and Charles worked with the band again, by the way. They used uh, one of his photos from a show with Mud Honey at the Berkeley Square in Berkeley as the cover for Louder Than Love. Yeah. The back cover has got that uh, that old fashioned, shall we say, Soundgarden logo. Yeah, a bit, a bit, you a know, bit. in the the teal and blue. <laughs> I, I don't know who this is, but it says uh, "Serious Gripes 
forwarded to Peter Paterno, Esquire. Do you know who that is? Probably their lawyer. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then it gives all, all the credits there in terms of the work that Drew did at Dogfish. And then, of course, um, the B-side that Jack and Dino did. I actually, last time when we did Ultra Mega OK, I didn't look into Drew that much. But this time I did. And he has worked on a bunch of records that um, that I've got. And I didn't really realize it. Um, he's on like a ton of Cracker Bash records and Dharma Bums records. Um, we also mentioned him on the Black Flag Annihilate This Week EP yep. way, way back. Yep. Um, he's also on that uh, Three Swimmers, American Technology 12-inch we've mentioned a number of times. Um, the Voodoo Gear Shift record, Glue Goat, that's a great record. And then in 2019, if you want to hear some live Drew Canalette, he also uh, manned the board for the Green River Live at the Tropicana record that was released on jackpot in 2019 so that's another uh record so drew's been on a ton of stuff that i didn't realize i had in my collection huh. yeah i have that record and i didn't know that either yeah it's cool no dead wax on the 10 inch ep version not on my 12 inch either yeah well then i think we are headed to the ballot result ballot result so what did we do for ultra mega okay Beyond the wheel, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how else you could choose anything other than that. So, is it flower this time? Kind of, right? It is for me. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's got to be flower. It's such a killer song. Yeah. I like. You got to check out that BBC version. I like that one better, yeah. actually. Well, I've I know I've heard it because I have the Telephantasm. Yeah, I have it. So, yeah, you got to check that out. All right. Hey, maybe thanks to Drew for being a guest. Here's hoping. Yeah. <laughs> if not, we tried. We tried. You know. Yeah. The Mojack train is moving on. Yep. Full steam ahead, man. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, it's SST 232, the Elliott Sharp and Soldier String Quartet, Hammer, Anvil, Stirrup. And you know what I realized? Actually, I did, like, I would, I meant to mention this earlier on. <laughs> Both Soundgarden releases are like sandwiched between a paper bag and an Elliot Sharp release. Really? Yet, yet they occur like thirty releases apart. Hmm. There's there's a few there's a few in between, but they're like there's like a paper bag and an Elliot Sharp bookend wow. kind of to both Soundgarden releases. That is weird, man. Hmm. Very. And I'm and I'm sure it's totally random. <laughs> <laughs> so next week with Elliot Sharp. Can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.